0: We have a moral obligation to many of these refugees who are now afoot in the world because they've left their countries because of us, because of the wars that we have started, because of the drugs that we buy, and because of the mess that we've made of the climate.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Rebecca Frankel, FP's executive editor for print, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today. With me in the studio is FP's deputy editor for news, Keith Johnson, and joining us by phone is Suketu Mehta. Suketu is the New York-based author of Maximum City, Bombay Lost and Found, and associate professor of journalism at NYU. Currently, he's working on a nonfiction book about immigrants in contemporary New York. Also calling in over Skype is Becca Heller. Becca is the director and co-founder of the International Refugee Assistance Project and a visiting lecturer at Yale Law School. Today, we're talking about immigration, more specifically about the pieces Suketu and Becca contributed to the September-October edition of FP's print magazine. Suketu's feature essay, This Land is Their Land, turns what is at times a brutal gaze on the West's fear of migrants and that fear's corrosive effect on modern society in America and Europe. In the magazine's back page, the final word, Becca shares her view on what a just immigration policy in the United States should look like. Suquetu, Becca, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thanks for inviting
1: me. Thank you for having us. Okay. A- and to Keith. I, I'm always thankful Keith is in the well, thank you. studio too. Uh, so today we're going to talk about immigration. Uh, it was a driving theme in our print issue to which you both contributed what I would say were two of the most impassioned and also provocative pieces on the topic. And we certainly got comments and feedback from our readers on that, which I will bring up a little bit later. Diving right into the very gritty heart of the matter, Suketu, you You write rather succinctly, very early on in the piece, that the West is being destroyed not by migrants, but by the fear of migrants. And I wanted to ask you both, Suketu, you first, uh, where where does that fear come from?
0: So, I've been traveling a lot through Europe, and I, I live in America, and this is what I've been noticing, just a tremendous paranoia about migrants. And the fear actually comes from this idea of being replaced. That phrase you hear throughout Europe and America coming from the mouth of white nationalists. They were yelling it uh, in the rallies in Charlottesville, we will not be replaced. There was actually a French book called The Great Replacement, which came out a few years ago, which has this idea that the French white population will be replaced all at once by hordes of migrants coming from the south, um, mainly Muslims. So it's a fear of essentially white nationalists in these countries who in the last few years have seen their wages drop, their suicide rates rise. So at this point some of the highest suicide rates in America are middle aged white men. And so it is a legitimate fear and it needs to be addressed. These are people who for much of the twentieth century control the world and They still control much of the world in the 21st century. But they see that their children don't have the same opportunities that they do. Hence, Trump gets elected. And in Europe, you know, Orban gets elected. In country after country, you see the nationalists get elected. And behind the nationalists are very powerful interests that use immigrants as scapegoats. So something I point out in my article is that there's eight men who now control more wealth than half of the planet combined. That is 3.6 billion people uh, own the fame of eight men. So... W- There's an outrage at inequality in all these countries, and the safest way for wealthy elites in these countries to channel the outrage is to direct it at the migrants and say, blame them, not us. But if if you were to look at most economists, you know, the the vast majority of economists, they show that uh, immigration is beneficial for these countries. There's a report that just came out that refugees to the United States brought in $63 billion more, that have contributed $63 billion more to the country than the amount of government service that was spent on them. But, you know, it's, in the end, it's not a numbers-based argument. It's an emotional argument. Uh, and the people who are afraid of migrants are afraid that they, their race, their culture will be replaced by all these people who are on the move.
1: And, and Becca, are you seeing sort of or absorbing the same kind of reaction in the work that you've been doing since January in particular?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a podcast that you can't you can't see my vigorous nodding <laughs> um, with with everything that uh, my illustrious co- guest speaker just said. Um, but I think that, that that's absolutely what's happening is that you have this sort of alt right, white nationalist political group that wants to scapegoat an other so that there's someone to blame for economic and other sorts of problems. I mean, this isn't new. I'm Jewish. Jews are pretty familiar with this happening, you know, prior to World War II. And the easiest other to scapegoat is is always the new guy. And I think you can look at Americans and say, you know, who's the immigrant that doesn't deserve to be here? Who's the refugee that doesn't deserve to be here? Oh, it's the one that was on the boat right behind your ancestor. It's an arbitrary line to draw. And I, I think it's particularly unfortunate because not only do I not think that refugees and immigrants are people that we should be afraid of, I think that they're people that we should want to come into this country. If you buy the baseline argument that economy is bad, that there's an opioid crisis, that we need to move away from manufacturing jobs and foster social entrepreneurship, then you have to say who should be making up the labor force. And the thing that I think is amazing about the the refugees that we work with is that they are people who have been through these just horrific, horrific things who have voted with their feet, so to speak, gotten across a border, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, made it to America, and are fighting really hard to start over. And I think if you want a country, a democracy, a workforce made up of tenacious entrepreneurs who will work incredibly hard for forward progress, then you should be more open to letting in immigrants and refugees. I think it's it's just completely backwards to try to blame them for stagnation when they're actually, I think, a lot of what promotes innovation in this country.
3: I think that's a great point that you made, because both of the pieces actually speak about, you know, directly and indirectly, the, the economic benefits. But, uh, you know, I just wanted to go back. Does this, I mean, you, you mentioned these are tenacious, hardworking, entrepreneurial people. I mean, doesn't that actually just sort of reinforce what Suketu was talking about with the fear of being replaced? I mean, if you if you had a sort of sense of entitlement that You know, I don't have to go the extra mile. I'm still going to have the house and the car and the mortgage and the steady job and the pension plan without lifting a finger. And then you find sort of the 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 Red Queen phenomenon. You have to run harder and harder just to stay in place. I mean, doesn't that very vibrancy of that immigrant community increase the level of backlash they could get?
2: Only if you buy into the completely BS myth that it's somehow zero sum, that You know, that the economy has a certain number of jobs and that if an immigrant gets one, someone who isn't an immigrant isn't going to get another, that social entrepreneurs don't actually generate job creation, that driving the economy forward in innovative ways isn't what America has to do to replace the manufacturing jobs that we've lost um, I just think to assume that if I'm applying for something and an immigrant is applying for something, only one of us can get it, and that's the end of the story, is is an incredible ignorant oversimplification of how things actually work. Like. We're, we're you can't look at it on the microcosm of one single job and one single job application. You have to be looking at it from the point of view. And again, this is ignoring the humanitarian argument entirely. But even from a purely economic perspective, you have to look at it from the point of view of the economy as a whole and say, economic growth creates jobs. What creates economic growth? And that benefits everybody.
3: Right. But the same arguments made about, for instance, trade policy. And if you look at the economy as a whole, NAFTA is a a plus. If you look at very specific sectors and factories and individual jobs, it can be a minus. And it's this very inability to look at the macro picture or the economy as a whole or the labor market as a whole – that has fed a lot of this nativist backlash. So, I mean, I, you and I can talk about the, the, the silly notion that there's a zero-sum economy, but in certain towns, in certain places, where there are a limited number of jobs and they go to a certain community, I mean, I, I think I can understand why there would be this sort of sense as as Zuckiette was saying with the French book, um, this fear of wholesale replacement, like an entire class could be replaced. It just I, I can understand to a certain extent, I think, this this angst. My my question is, how do you communicate this the the benefits that can come from having a more vibrant economy and and not just the economy not just the workforce but to have other things to additional culture um different kinds of food cuisine music uh languages it's a whole richer environment that's out there but how do you make that argument because it hasn't obviously worked in the 2016 campaign it it, it's an uphill battle so far in 2017 how do you make that case
2: i think there's a number of different ways to make it. I mean, I think one way to make it is that the towns that are losing jobs aren't losing them because immigrants are coming in. They're losing them because jobs are going out. Right. So I think coal is sort of a quintessential example of this. And it was brought up quite a bit in the 2016 campaign that, you know, betting on coal is betting on a losing industry. It's not actually that many jobs, but you do have this, you know, coal belt of voters who are losing their jobs and who are afraid of that. Are they losing them because immigrants and refugees are coming in and taking them? No, they're losing them because the the energy sector is moving in different directions. Is it really complicated to make that argument? Yes. The other thing to note about refugees in particular is that refugees don't. Settle to U.S. towns arbitrarily. They're actually there's a there's a pretty complex, deliberate system of where refugees are assigned that, in fact, takes the local job market into account. Um, so the majority of towns that receive refugees are towns that want refugees. They've expressed a desire for refugees. Oftentimes, they have jobs that other people won't take that refugees are willing to take. This includes, you know, a meat packing. Um, plant in Nebraska that resettled a ton of refugees to that town and was able to keep the plant from being taken overseas. I don't think that masses of immigrants are converging on towns with really high unemployment, because I think that immigrants want to go to places where jobs are available. Um, And a number of studies have found that even towns that, you know, feel that they're anti-refugee or might be in locations where you would think, that people of color or people from different cultures might not be tolerated um, are really happy when they get refugee resettlement programs because it adds such a rich fabric to the town. I think not just in terms of concrete cultural things like food and art, but I think there's a lot of reasons why diversity and pluralism strengthen democratic institutions in a pretty fundamental way.
0: I completely agree. And uh, I think one way to look at this whole debate about immigration is the urban rural divide. So, cities that have a lot of immigrants, uh, uh, people, places where people interact with immigrants in their daily lives, like New York City, are extremely immigrant friendly. In fact, their mayors have declared these cities as sanctuary cities. Two out of three New Yorkers today are immigrants or their children. And Mayor Bloomberg. Um, uh, I believe when he was a Republican, went up to Capitol Hill and said, if it had not been for immigration of all kinds, legal and illegal, the economy of New York would have collapsed after 9-11. So I think a lot of the resistance to immigration is coming from places like Iowa, where they either don't have a lot of immigrants or only have one kind of immigrants. But places where there's a diversity of uh, immigrants from all over, no one gets scapegoated uh, because everyone has experience of everyone else, and you see in your daily interactions with people that you know we are all here for the same reason to make a better life for our children, to contribute to the national economy, and not to pillage and rape, as some of the politicians describe us. The same sort of dynamic applies in Europe. Um, The resistance to Brexit, a lot of it, was about uh, immigration, Uh, not just um, uh, Muslims uh, and uh, Africans coming in, but also Romanians and Poles. And a lot of the resistance came from the countryside places which didn't have a lot of experience with migrants. And uh, the city of London was overwhelmingly against Brexit because they knew the practical benefits of immigration in the day-to-day life. So the more people experience immigrants directly, personally, the more in favor they are of immigrant-friendly politicians.
1: And, Becca, you, you speak to that in your, in your piece. You say that, you know, in the United States, we've allowed the rhetoric to become so polarized that, that people aren't able to see the the connection between, you know, Americans living in the Rust Belt uh, who are struggling to try and af- afford rising health care or um, are dealing with job losses to, you know, be able to relate to the experience that immigrants have or refugees have trying to come over to seek, you know, as you say, better opportunity to contribute in the United States.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, I think there's, you know, as trite as it sounds, we. Have much more in common than than separates us
1: so where 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 does the divide get crossed because it would seem certainly in the the if we wanted to, to sort of dive into the Trump administration and the policies that are oh, Keith just shivered um, that are that are getting pushed out. We were all listening to the u n speeches here in the office this week and listening to Trump talk. To other nations, and and he, to hear him say, you should put your countries first, you should put your people first, and that was his way, I think, of justifying and you know his own nationalism and and um, America first policies. And and you know, Suketu, in your piece, you talk about uh, Trump's July speech in Poland, um, and the problems with that. And what messages do you think are reinforced? Because he's not necessarily talking directly about immigration policies at the UN but somehow they seem related.
0: Yeah. um, Being a nationalist doesn't mean that you aren't in favor of immigration. In fact, if you really want to Put your country first then you should be attracting the most and the best talented immigrants i mean look at japan it's a country that's been in a decade-long slump uh, partially because it doesn't let in immigrants and um its birth rate right now is so low that it's fast approaching the rate where it uh, the population won't even be replaced it's people are getting older and there aren't young enough young japanese to pay the pensions Uh, of the the older ones, so they'll need to bring in immigrants sooner or later. It's not going to be a choice for them. And countries which have let in a lot of immigrants, like the United States, uh, Canada, uh, Australia, they've prospered. I mean, the literature on this is kind of, it's like the literature about climate change. There's a very small minority of economists who question the benefits uh, of immigration and there really are species of immigration deniers, but you know, as I said, it in the end I think it's more about emotion than numbers. So it was interesting after this article came out, I started getting trolled by the white supremacists, and I have never encountered such a kind of volume of abuse ever, as I have after this. They uh, send me.